that greater story. It's communicating the greater story of how God has created us, how God is working in and through us, how God is working in and through his creation. And again, how we saw that it ultimately, the Zacchaeism, that it perfectly rests ultimately in day four when he gave us the gift of time. And if you're a wilderness people, the first primary, uh, the primary audience of this, the children of Israel likely, you need to know what time it is. You need to see the passing of the days. You need to know that the passing of time is going on. We see the passage of years and how quickly those can change sometimes. But I bet in the wilderness it may not have been as fast. It may have been a little bit slower in the wilderness. I don't know about y'all, but when it's a slow day, it ain't too fun at work. When it's just a day to where nothing gets done and it's just slow and everything drags, it's just one of those days. It's not fun. My entire office was gone the other day about 3.30 because everybody had just given up. Everybody had just given up, had other things to do. Everybody was unchecked. Don't know what it was, but it was a slow day. We need time to check these things. But today, in this day of creation, on day six, as he's focusing on in on the creation of man and woman, he's brought it down. We've seen the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, but here we begin to see the eminence of God. So let us read in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 this morning. I'll not ask you to stand for the reading of this due to its length this morning. I appreciate you standing earlier, but I trust that you will reverence the Word of God in your hearts this morning as we read chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, and there is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same it is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel, that is, it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmate for him. 
And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you again for the wonderful blessing that it is. As we began this morning, to reflect in your holiness, to reflect in your judgment, your goodness, O God, extended unto your children, God, to see how that is actually a condemnation against all who do not believe, O God. Father, and how we are now cast into the Garden of Eden with your first creation and with here, O God. Father, we just pray that we would repent and trust only in you. Father, we pray that we would be obedient to your word. We pray that we would see your holiness and know that it is something outside of us, that we are reliant and dependent upon you, God. We just pray that we would rest in the word that you have given us, God, that we would faithfully obey it in every generation that is to come as well, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you again. We pray that you would save somebody that's not already repented and trusted in you alone, God. We pray that you renew and restore somebody that has sidetracked. God, for those of us who need comfort, for those of us who need encouragement in general, God, we pray knowing that you are sufficient for all of our needs of God. And, Father, you do abundantly bless us, not minorly, but abundantly, O God. Father, what a wonderful blessing it is just to reflect in you this morning, God. I just praise you and thank you, asking it all in our Son, Jesus Christ, holy name, that you get all the honor in you. Amen and amen. Sometimes I don't want to leave off in prayer. That's what I tell my staff sometimes is we try to alternate who prays in our house, who prays over what meal in particular. And uh, sometimes I just have to tell my staff, I got along with it because sometimes I got him on the line and I, I don't want to let him go. And there are times and there are seasons of great fellowship with God that I don't know what it is to say, but it's just sweeter. And the last three weeks have in so many ways been that for me is just a season of sweetness with God. I don't know, is it because I'm studying in the book of Genesis and, and that's why it's so sweet? Is it all circumstantial? I don't know what it is, but there's just been a sweetness that I don't want to hang up the line on. And that's why I'm glad that he has told us to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean you always have to be on your knees praying? Maybe you need to be on your knees praying more. I do better sitting in a chair or something like that praying. That's where I pray better than I do even on my knees. But there is a weakness. There is a position of understanding that when I come to God in prayer, it's because I'm needful of Him, because I'm reliant and dependent upon Him. Prayer is making us weak before Him. We're not looking for strong man arguments. I'm not looking for y'all to be the strongest Christians there's ever been. No, as a matter of fact, if we're to be the church that we ought to be, we ought to be about the weakest people that have ever Man. The weaker we become, the more reliant and pursuant of God we become, the better it will be. Because that's ultimately what we are even seeing here in the book of Genesis. Now there is a temptation for me to actually try to preach chapters 2 and chapters 3. But that just seems to be too much to kind of handle in one, in one week, in one sermon per se. But I think it's going to be one sermon. It's just going to be divided into two parts. We're going to get part 1 this week and then we'll get part 2 next week. But you'll understand as we get to it, there's a lot of chapter 2 that correlates with chapter 3. And it amazes me. Most commentators, most authors, they write about chapters 2 and 3 together and show that it's ultimately the same story. That while we divide it, it's ultimately telling that same story, that same account. That's needful for us to know is that when we're watching sometimes on a Saturday night, I want to watch a movie because I want to see the completion of the whole storyline. It helps me to think through, see another storyline protected. But sometimes 
it's a TV show or something like that. I'm trying to decompress a little bit on Saturday nights oftentimes, but I'm always thinking about Sunday. It's weird. Miss Tara probably hasn't figured out why I do that yet. But it is weird to me. I'm sitting there thinking about the text, and sometimes I'm wanting a TV show to where it's it's leaving me on a cliffhanger for that next episode and how I love to get to the end of a, of a season on a TV series that's going to go into the next and leaves us on a cliffhanger waiting for what's next. And that's ultimately what has happened in chapter 1. It's left us for waiting for what is next. And chapter 2 will be the same. It leaves us waiting on what is next. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, we've already heard about the accounting of God creating all of the heavens and, and the earth. So why is it being presented again? It says these are the generations of. Well, that's something that's repeated throughout the book of Genesis a number of times. These are the generations of. If you're a fan of law and order, it's it, the special victims unit and all that different stuff, and they saw all these different things, and it says at the end of their little tagline on law and order, it says, and these are their stories. That's effectively what this is saying. It's saying this is the blurb of law and order that is saying, and these are their stories. And these are the stories of creation. That in the day that creation is made, it's the Lord God. That begins to take a little bit of a difference. That begins to take a little bit of a different tone is that it's saying the Lord God. Previously, it's been talking about God, not the Lord God. It's been talking about God, the creator. When we see God, just G-O-D in the Bible, oftentimes there's something in us that should be triggering our creator. There needs to be something in us that triggers, okay, it's speaking mostly about the creator. But anytime that we see the Lord God, well, the Lord is the, the, the personal name of God. That is that word Jehovah or Yahweh as we all, Yahweh rather as we often call it. But we just call it in the King James language, we just call him Lord. That's all that I've ever known him as. It's all caps Lord, L-O-R-D, and that is the personal name of God. That is his personal relating. So we have seen the utter the utterness of God, the otherness of God, rather, as he was the the, the, the transcendency of God as he kept being God, God, God. It's all throughout chapter 1 that he's just God. But here in chapter 2, he's saying the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's the same God that made the earth and the heavens to begin with, but now he is the Lord God. He's cueing in the audience to realize this is the goodness. This is the one who relates to us personally. But this isn't the watchmaker argument. No, he's the God that actually has activeness in our lives. He's not as some people in the founding of our country are thought to have been deists, that they believed in God, but they believed that the rest of it was left up to us. Y'all, if the rest of it was left up to us, we couldn't find our way out of a paper sack. I'm convinced of it. We just don't seem to have that much knowledge about us. Some of the smartest people in the world I know, we just keep messing everything up. But in this first created order, that doesn't seem to be the case. If you and I know that we keep messing so many things up and that everybody else messes everything up, so if y'all hear me talk about traffic all the time, me and Ms. Terry, we got behind somebody this morning. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to drive. They didn't know. Pulled up aside and teach them how to drive. We needed to have a little Sunday school lesson before the time. That's what I wanted to do with them. I say that jokingly, and I paint that picture that way because I knew something was broken with their driving. I don't know what was going on in their minds. It might have been they were nervous. It might have been they didn't know what they were doing. It might have been a hundred other things, but because they inconvenienced me, they didn't know what they were doing. They needed to be taught better. I see brokenness in this world. If it weren't for brokenness, I'm convinced we wouldn't have to have stop signs. That sure wouldn't make my day if I didn't have to worry about a stop sign or a traffic light or anything else. But the problem is, as soon as I get on the road and somebody else is on the road, we got problems if we don't have laws and if we don't have things in place. I've been doing a statistics class this week, all those fun and wonderful things, and talking about statistics and it talked about parameters. And that's the way that we understand what a group of people are in, the parameters given for a group of people. God has given us certain parameters. God has given us parameters of our existence. 
Yes, he has created us, but he's a God that has not left us alone. He is the Lord God. He is relating to us personally. He is active in our lives. He does, as people say, he does want to know us. He does want to be involved. And whether you want him to be involved or not, he's involved in your life. Sometimes there's times I'd like to say, God, just go away for a little bit. I can handle it. Sometimes I do say that. With my actions, if not with my words. I'll say, God, you, I, I got this for a little while, and I find that I mess it up because that's not the way that we were created to be. Look how he continues in verse 5. He says, In every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God, there it is again, he's relating to us as the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Immediately he's king in the audience that if there's nobody to care for this earth, even in this perfect Edenic land as it is, Something's not right. Something is lacking even in this time period. God has already declared these things to be good, and yet there's something more to it. And yet there is something lacking at this point in creation. And he's created all the rest of this humanity. The world is lacking without humanity. The world is lacking without somebody to care for the ground, to till the ground. It says in verse 6, But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Everything else God has been speaking into existence. Everything else has been created in some form. Nothing has been breathed the breath of life into. That tells us God is relating to us personally. He's relating as to give us the breath. He's relating as to us. Breath is oftentimes representative, representative as the spirit is. He's given us the spirit of life. If you see somebody that's got a crushed spirit, if you see somebody that's got a broken spirit, something about them, it's very hard to deal with. If you see somebody dealing with depression, it's hard to deal with because they often just have a broken spirit. What's even scarier, as we so often know, if you've ever had any encounters with it, is when they're deeply depressed and you don't know it. Is when their outside countenance is lifted up, but their inner countenance is falling within them. Beloved, that's not true of the God of Eden. In God's perfect order, in God's order of the creation, those things are not perfect. Everything about this letter is shouting out to the people. You've already seen creation in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, if you're the children of Israel, and I assume they've been hearing these stories for a long time, but I'm thinking about the children of Israel that are coming up, that are being born in the wilderness, that have never known these stories, that they're hearing these stories for the first time as they're hearing this, if they've lived for any length of time, they know. But God's humanity is broken. Humanity is not good. All of these different problems, humanity has problems with lives. You and I come to this Genesis chapter 2 with a lot of background, with a lot of baggage to us, and we're wondering, God, how are you working through creation? It says in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in, the, in Eden, and there put he the man whom he had formed. That to say that he had planted him eastward, he had planted him in a garden, put him there eastward in the garden of Eden. That is to signify where life comes from, that the sun rises in the east. So for it to say eastward, it's facing that direction of life. And morning is coming on this. This is the starting of all of these things. And it says in verse 9, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you have two trees that are represented. There are many trees. I don't know what all kind of trees there are. 
I sure hope there's a good there's a good apple tree there, but I don't see it. Everybody seems to reflect that it was an apple that Adam and Eve ate. We don't know what fruit it was. You're talking to Miss Terry, she tells she thinks it's a fruit that doesn't exist anymore. And I'd be like, I can't confirm, but I can't deny that theory either. There's a lot of theories that we have, and I don't know what kind of trees there were, but I know that they were good. I know that they were pleasant to look at. I know that they were pleasant to eat fruit from, and I know there's at least two. There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see that there are no moral statements made about either one of those? There, there are absolutely zero moral statements that are made about either one of those trees. There is nowhere here in chapter 2 to where one tree is said to be better than the other tree. Now, I get thinking that if I were Adam and Eve and I had the tree of life, I'd want to go eat the tree of life. But I also understand that if I eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but surely with the tree of life, they would want to eat. But for a people that had always had life, and we've not even gotten to the creation of woman just yet, we're just looking at these two trees. But again, this is all unfolding out at the same time. When we see this unfolding here, that there's the tree of life and there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, beloved, there's no difference made between these two trees other than there are two different trees. There's no moral difference. There's just the fact that there's life and there's the knowledge of good and evil. Both are present in the Garden of Eden. And the author is drawing our attention to that detail. Let's not add to it. Let's not take away from it. Let's notice that there's two trees that are hidden in the Garden of Eden. And then, of course, you see it says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, and the delium and the onyx stone, the jewels that he is mentioning of, delium, people disagree what it is. People have a theory, it's this, it's that. I don't know what delium is. All I know is there's gold, there's delium, there's onyx. I know that gold's yellow, but sometimes it's clear. But I think here it's probably talking about the golden gold that we know of, that yellow gold that we're talking about. And then you have on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have that it is the onyx stone. It's that blackened stone. But both are so beautiful to look at when they have been refined. And in an uncorrupted, it would be nothing but undefined. So even when we're seeing in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, it is a bountiful world. It is with the richness of gold. It is with the richness of onyx. It's with the richness of the rivers. Everything about this land, God has created with absolute abundance. If ever there was a good place to live, it's where Adam's living right now. Eve's not even in the picture just yet. But if the children of Israel are hearing this, they've got to be thinking one thing. We are bound for the promised land. Maybe we need to start singing that one with this too. We did it when we were in the book of Exodus. We might need to do it here in the book of Genesis. We're bound for the promised land. The children of Israel may be keyed into something. Wait a minute. We're headed to the promised land. And if you know the truth about the promised land, the promised land used to be their home. The promised land used to be where the children of Israel lived for a season until they fled the presence of God. There's something in this story that is, is bringing and inviting the children of Israel to see this, that it's good right now, but something bad's about to happen. It's good right now. It's in abundance right now, but something bad is happening because they know they're not in this land. They know they're not in the Garden of Eden. If you're hearing it for the first time, as they were. It says, and the name of the in verse 13, and the name of the second river is Gihon, the same it is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. 
And the name of the third river is Hedekel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Everything about this river is a land of abundance. The United States has often been called for many a promised land. And I say all the problems, and I'm like, if you really think this is the promised land, I'm so bad for you. There's something so much better than what America's got. But America's got a lot of wonderful things and has been promised this because we've got an abundance of resources that are here. We've got one of the most, we've got the most glorious access to so many things. We've got so many protections in the rest of this world. We're seeing some of those erode just through the passage of time. But even still, you and I living in a country like we do, we're able to see what a land of abundance looks like. I've never had to wonder. Now, some people in this building probably had to wonder what was in their cabinet. But they've never been in a land where there was no food for everybody. They could have gone to the store. It amazes me when you actually think about it. Some of you have lived through some hard times where you personally may not have had access to food. But think about it. That there's always been food in your life. That you could have gone to the grocery store. There was something that you could have gotten out there. Financially, there may have been a situation where you weren't able to. But in each and every one of our lives, we've not known scarcity. Every one of us in here, we didn't even go through the rationing of World War II. That's not even been a full generation ago. And yet, during the course of World War II, they were having to ration what people had so that they could send it over to the troops. You and I have never known that. You and I have known the richest, most blessed, most wonderful time in the history of the United States and probably in the history of almost any country in the world. Do you know that you and I can identify largely with what Adam was seeing over there? We can identify the wonderful blessings of God. But we also live in a country where we know not everything's perfect. Not everything's good. But if we live in such a beautiful land, how can things be so bad? If we live in such a land where he is the Lord our God, where he is related to us personally, how can things be this bad, God? I told you last week, quoting Brother Bud Stilton, that yes, I submit to you this is a book of answers, but it also leaves me with a lot of questions. I think that the children of Israel are hearing all of these good things. And they might begin to look up at God and say, how dare you? I'm not saying they were. I'm just saying they might. I'm saying that it might be a moment where, God, you've blessed us with all these good things, but you've got us stuck in the wilderness. We're looking at the United States and we're saying, God, you've got us blessed with all these good things. But, yeah, there's so much in my life. There's so much in this experience that is a wilderness type experience. God, I know that you are the goodness of God. God, I know that you are intricately related in our lives. I know that you are closely working with us in our lives. Why is everything so wrong? Why is everything so broken? Why are there problems upon problems upon problems? Well, he doesn't end it in chapter 2 in verse 15, he can, or in verse 14. He continues in verse 15 and says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He's just in the Garden of Eden. That God's not even let him outside the Garden of Eden just yet. There's the whole world. There's the whole earth and heavens that he has created. Everything needs to be tended for. And God, instead of telling him to care for everything, he said, you just take care of Eden. You just take care of this garden that I've given you. And that's where you have to worry about. That's the domain that you have to exercise over. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Would you look again to that verse 17? Would you look and see that there's nothing morally, there's no moral statement made about that tree? You know what I can't figure out about that tree? 
that I have heard many times, I've heard many a sermon, I've heard a lot of things preached on that passage. And I've always heard that that tree was a bad one. And then I question, if it's in God's goodly order that he put something in there that was bad for us. And surely when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, we got some questions to answer. we got some things that will make us question. But as of yet, if we've been growing up as the children of Israel and we see the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I've always thought that's been a bad one. I've always thought that was a bad tree. I've always thought there was something morally wrong about that tree. You don't find that in this passage. Do you see that God never condemns this tree? There's no condemnation of the knowledge of good and evil. People say, well, it's representative. It means something more. Maybe, maybe. But beloved, there is nothing bad that is stated about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet you and I know something wrong with this picture. Let's continue reading. In verse 18 it says, and the Lord God, there it is again, and the Lord God, every time it's referring to him, it's saying, and the Lord God. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help mate for him. Well, praise God, fellas, we're going to get some help. Praise God for Adam, he's going to get some help because he sure doesn't need it. You want to incorporate every joke that you can in here? Don't do it. There's some of them that are funny. Most of them are just mean and hateful. Don't be joking like that. But he needs a help. He needs somebody that will help him. So what does God do? He says in verse 19, he says, Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature was the name thereof. Praise God for Adam. That the first human is the one that's naming everything. And God gives him that level and that degree of responsibility. God does give us in our lives degrees of responsibilities, choices, decisions that we have to make. Now, I'll submit to you, there's a famous, there's two words that everybody wants to articulate, and we can have a long conversation. If you want to talk about it more, let's talk about it after service. Let's talk about it. I don't know, just context. We can have a whole session on this if we need to. There's two words everybody wants to talk about. It's free will. I just want to tell you that in the Bible, you don't see those two particular words listed in that frame in that fashion. So when we come to this and we see the decisions of Adam, let us be mindful that everything that God has given of us, of the principle of free will, there is a reason that we have that principle of what we call free will. But remember, God has given us a certain level of decisions. We're not the creator. We're not the ones who created all things. We don't get to be the master of our fates. Instead, the way that we see Adam behaving is not necessarily with that level of free will that we often talk about in the United States. And again, that term carries so much baggage with it. I've probably got an idea of that word that differs from your idea of that word. But when we come to this passage, let's not take our baggage with that word and put it on Adam. Let's look at how Adam is living his life. Adam is exercising the dominion that God has given him. In this verse, we see that Adam is acting in obedience to God within the decisions that he's been given to make. God has given us a level of decision-making within our lives, but yet we are still called unto obedience to him. Just because we get to choose what we do, just because we get to choose how we act, does not mean that we're not supposed to be in obedience unto God. 
Beloved, your free will is not to go sinning against God. Your free will is never meant to be used whether you get to live for God or whether you don't get to live for God. That term has been abused so many times. But we better be careful how we use it. Let's look at it biblically. We have right to act where God has given us right to act. We don't have right to act where God has not given us right to act. I say all that. Some of this is going to be unplaced over time. Complicated things we're dealing with here. It says... Even as he's going there, it says that he named them. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord God called, or, or in verse 20, it says, And Adam gave names to the cattle and the fowl of the air to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and helpmate for him. Nothing else that was created out of the ground was satisfactory to be a helpmate for Adam because nothing else had the breath of the life of God living in it. Nothing else was the same as Adam. Everything else was something that Adam had been given dominion over. Something else was needed for Adam. Not something that Adam could rule over. Not something that Adam could be the boss over. But instead, we see an interesting story unfold here in verse 21. It says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her Unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Do you see that the story, I believe, of Zimonimus Terry's wedding vows? It's kind of nice that we got to sing a Christian home this morning because. That was actually played at our wedding. There's not really a good version of it out there to play that you can hear the lyrics to. So just go back and read the lyrics of that one again. A Christian home. Look up the lyrics to it and see how it almost reads as a prayer for a Christian home. I was reminded of it this morning. I didn't sit down and pre-read the lyrics. I just knew the lyrics to it were good. But as we were singing the lyrics to it this morning, I thought, what a prayer for my for man Miss Terrace household that we both should make. That yes, there are certain familial structures that are in place. But as we're even contained in our wedding vows, as best I remember, is the semblance of that he didn't take from Adam's foot. He didn't take from Adam's head. He took from Adam's side. That he took somebody to walk beside him to be an equal to Jesus. Now, if you've been around Christianity long and you get into the arguments or you get into the questions of Christianity, there's two terms that come into play. They're always being debate, debated. If you don't believe me, don't go on a Christian Twitter. It's a horrible thing to see because they're always fussing and feuding and fighting just like any of us would do. But they're always debating. Are we supposed to be egalitarians? Are we supposed to be complementarianism? Which one are we supposed to live in? Which one are we supposed to look at? Which one is Genesis chapter 2 telling us? Is Genesis chapter 2 telling us about an, uh, about an egalitarian world or is it telling us about a complementary world? Which one is it telling us some? Is it telling us to where we walk complementary to one another or is it calling us on of where one's above the other? Which one is it telling us about? Is it talking about egalitarianism or is it talking about complementarianism? I would say to you that if you want to read either one of these into this passage, you might be misled. We need to understand that it is taken from the side to walk beside. We need to understand that it was supposed to be a help. But that doesn't mean that a man gets to lord over his wife and tell her exactly what to do and how.
countenance I detest when I see a husband that just wants to bully his wife around. Sir, that is not what you were called to. Sir, that is not what you were created for. That is not a biblical picture and image of what marriage is supposed to be. It is supposed to be that we're walking side by side. Now, I understand in my household that I understand that ultimately, from even the book of Ephesians, it does say that word submit. It does not say that husbands, that uh, the wives are supposed to obey their husbands. It says that wives are supposed to submit unto their husbands. It says children obey your parents, and it says slaves obey your masters. But it says wives submit unto your husbands. Part of that is to do with some of the things that happened in Genesis chapter 3. But all of this to say is that the husband and the wife are ultimately supposed to be walking equally. My job sometimes is if there's a decision, I understand it to be my final responsibility. Me and Ms. Tara are split on a decision and we don't need to do, know what to do next. Ultimately, I understand that means as the head of our house is that it ultimately does fall to me that I'm supposed to make that decision. But y'all, I'm not making a decision without Ms. Tara. If I'm spending a dollar in the store, y'all can best bet I'm not making that decision without Miss Terry. I'm saying, hey, now sometimes we learn each other. We know certain things. We've been married long enough now. We know certain things. Okay, we can spend this amount of money. We can do this amount of thing, and we don't have to ask. But I'm always going to notify her. Hey, I had to buy a calculator the other day. I said, hey, I had to buy this special calculator. It costs this amount. I had to share this with her because I'm not lording over her and expecting her to know nothing. I'm expecting her to walk as my equal in this world, not as my lesser. And yes, while it does talk about husband and wife, do you notice that when God looks at him, he says, help me? Now, the word wife is in this passage. Moses is an excellent writer. Why didn't he say that Adam needed a wife? Adam did need a wife. Adam does get a wife. But why does he say, help me to not a wife? The language was already there to be used. Beloved, if we come away from Genesis chapter 2 seeing that he has only given us the gift of marriage, that should tell you that nobody should ever be seen. And we just know that that's not the case. We know that singleness is not a curse from God. Some people treat it as a curse. There's an abusive pastor in Arizona that's trying to purport it and say that a man is useless, that if he's in his mid-30s with not married and without kids, that he's useless. Beloved, that's a lie of the devil. That man needs to sit down and not preach again. That man needs to sit down and read his Bible again. Singleness is not a burden. Singleness can be a gift from God. It can have burdens with it, but guess what? If any of you have been married for any length of time, you know that marriage can have burdens. I'm not saying that your spouse is a burden. You may be in a such situation. I hope you're not. I've never experienced that aspect of things, but you may be in a situation like that. I hope you're not. But even still, you know that either way it brings burdens. It's not just that God is looking to this and saying that marriage, yes, while it is the normative order of this world, it's not just talking about marriage. I submit to you, he's talking about community. That he's not just talking about a husband and wife. He's talking about whether or not we have community. That singles have to walk in community. For a season here at Shed Road, not so much anymore, for a season here at Shed Road, we had several single folks. It was a blessing to be able to try to navigate those waters. We don't have as many single folks. One of them, we got two single folks hanging around right now, but they've already decided they're going to get hitched here in a few days. So we're going to make that happen, and then all of a sudden, we're going to be out of a lot of single people. We're going to have a few of them hanging around, but we're not going to have as nearly as many hanging around. Beloved, it's not about singleness. It's not ultimately about marriage. The truths about marriage are communicated in this passage, but it was not good that man should be alone. He doesn't say it's not good that man shouldn't have a wife. It's not good that man shouldn't be a husband. He says it's not good that man should be alone. Even in somebody's singleness, they still need community. Even in somebody's singleness, they need people that they can rely on, people they can trust on. 
And I have the wonderful blessing of coming home each day of my life. And I have loved her. Except for the few days she left me for a few days to go be with some friends. We've been together every day of our marriage. And what a wonderful blessing that's been. Even when she's at camp meeting, I get to see her on those days. And what a blessing that is. It's a wonderful thing to have my best friend as my wife. But beloved, I'm thankful for you all. This morning as I woke, I just got to praise God and thank you. Thanking him for each of you. Each of you hold a very special place in my life. You don't know the joy that it brings me to be able to pastor you all through situations. Now granted, I will tell you all, some congregations are neat. Some congregations want you every 24-7. I just look at pastors in that situation and I say, brother, I don't know what that's like. I have the most unneeded congregation in this world. But I want to say thank you for the community that you are. And I want us to pray that God would give us a stronger and richer community with one another. I look forward to here in a couple of weeks, here in a few weeks, to where we're going to sit together at a meal. Because we can sit here and we talk at a church, and I love those things, but there's just something about breaking bread together that is a special time. We need to do more of that. We need a stronger community built here. God has given us the gift of community, not as a burden, but as a gift. God has given us his commands. Not as a burden, but as gifts. If we walk away from anything in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, marriage is not a burden, it is a gift. Community is not a burden, it is a gift. God's order is not a burden, but it is a gift. That everything that God has given us is a gift. If you're the children of Israel in a wilderness land, you need to be reminded that the law that he gave you is impossible to uphold. It's impossible for you to walk perfectly according to it. There's going to have to be the Messiah that comes and upholds it perfectly. But even still, he's given it to you as a gift. Everything that God has given you in your life, that God has given you, has been a gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above. We always relate that to children. I know, and I don't think that's wrong. I think that's a great thing to relate to the gift of life. What a wonderful blessing it is that the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia upheld a right to life here in the state of Georgia this week. We praise God for that. But, beloved, every gift that you've had is a gift from God. If it's become a burden, it's become a disobedience of God. And we'll see the length of that next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that you lead God and direct us. God, just help us to feed upon these passages. Now, we know the preaching is not perfect, but we know that your word is perfect. We cleaned it, we cleaned it this morning a lot. Lord, may we honor and reverence you on every occasion that you give us to be. Let us come again.